Hello, Grace, and happy Thanksgiving week to everyone at Latham, Half Moon, Saratoga, and online. We are particularly grateful for Grace Fellowship this year. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness, for your compassion in 2020. We are so, so grateful to be part of this community. Today is our final weekend in our Life's Big Questions series, and we're going to wrap up that series today with part two of our pastor panel. We've spent the past few weeks exploring life's big questions, and throughout that series, we've asked Grace Fellowship to submit big life questions that are on their mind, the philosophical, spiritual, just tough, gritty topics that we encounter in our daily lives. And again, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We are going to do our best to fit as many of those questions in during the final part of our panel as we can. And before we begin on that dialogue, again, some brief introductions of the pastors of Grace Fellowship Church. At our far end of our panel is Pastor Isaac Denton, the pastor of our Saratoga campus. Next to him is Pastor Tim Gardner of our Half Moon campus. And next to him is Pastor Matt Saxon. He's the pastor of our Latham campus. And finally on our panel is the senior pastor of Grace Fellowship, Rex Keener. So I'm not going to waste time. Let's jump right on into part two of this panel and keep dialoguing. Um, Rex, I'll pass this first one to you, but then maybe we can have a discussion around it. We received two groupings of questions that at least at first seem contradictory. So I'll pose both questions at once, and I'm wondering if we can address them together in tension. So the first groupings of questions were, why are Christians so judgmental? And then conversely to that, why are Christians seemingly afraid to confront sin and judge it for the evil that it is? (laughs) Isn't that almost humorous, by the way? (laughs) Because those questions stand sort of juxtaposed with the other. Why are we so judgmental? Why are we not judgmental enough? So what's going on here? Who's right? And how are we supposed to understand that? Well, I'll give you my take on this question. I believe that Christians sometimes rightly get that um, sort of description of being too judgmental because sometimes I feel that we look out at the world, unbelievers, and we can kind of wag our fingers or look down our noses in condescending ways at them. And I think we earn sometimes that title of being a judgmental people if we do that. So let me just, let me just challenge everyone. If you're a believer out there, if you're a Christ follower, and you are one who tends to read the newspaper, go online and read blogs, look at the evening news, listen to that, and all the awful things going on out in the world, uh, and you tend to kind of shake your head and go, oh, it's so bad. Why are those people doing all those horrible things? They are so awful. They're adulterizing. They're calling evil good and good evil. They're cheating, lying, stealing. They are horrible people. If you tend to do that out to the world out there, I have two words for you. Please stop. 
please stop judging the world. That's what's giving us that reputation as being judgmental. Paul says in Galatians 5, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. So when you see that out there in the world, why would you be surprised? That is what will naturally characterize unbelievers, people who are far from God. As Paul writes in Titus chapter three, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Implication, we, be start, we began to change. So to put it to you briefly, we should stop judging the world and start judging ourselves. So the second question was about why do we not sometimes call sin out and call it what it is? I agree. If we're talking about people who are believers or professing to be believers, we should stop judging the world out there and we should start looking at ourselves and holding each other accountable to a biblical standard, which happens to be pretty high, by the way. God expects a lot of us when we come into the family of faith. So if you see adulterizing and people calling evil good and good evil and cheating and lying and stealing and all kinds of duplicity among believers, then you should do something. You should be alarmed to go, what's going on here? These kinds of behaviors and values and habits should not characterize the people of God as a rule. So there's why I believe there's a tension. The answer, stop judging the world, and let's start challenging one another to a higher level of behavior. That's my take on it. What do you guys think? I feel like we just got a sermon. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't help but think of Jesus' words about not taking the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you have a plank in your own eye. So there is that priority of focusing on the sin in your own life. And I think there's some practical ramifications of that as well, because the reality is I am uh, ill-equipped to help someone with a particular sin in their life if they're a believer, if I myself have not experienced victory in it. So yeah. I do think there's that prioritization of really looking at the sin in my life mortifying my flesh yeah. and with other believers really needing to be in a position of experiencing God's grace in that area in my life if I'm going to be able to help them in their pursuit of greater discipleship. I heard a phrase long ago uh, that, that I've never forgotten. Stop, someone said, stop expecting unbelievers to act like believers until they are. And I think that that's a, a part of that judging the world piece where we sometimes, I think, naively expect unbelievers to act like believers when they're not believers yet. So that's important. Reminds, <clears throat> reminds me of a children's song, and I'm not here to ruin this song for you, but <laughs> it might. So I apologize. I do apologize. The kid's song of Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. It's always struck me as we started singing this song to our kids every night before they went to sleep uh, when they were young, it struck me that 
we're singing Jesus loves me, it's me, it's the first person, and all of a sudden it shifts to they are weak, but he is strong. So we changed the words after our kids turned, I think, one year old. We are weak, but he is strong. And it, it focuses like the, the attention that we need Jesus just as much as anybody else. And I love that. I'm sorry for ruining the song for you, uh, but it, it's, I think, the right way to sing it. But I, like I love it, Tim, because there's yeah. never a time in our Christian walk where we don't need Jesus. Right. And that's not just God talk. That's not just ecclesiological, you know, stained glass language. There's never a time in my walk where I do not need Jesus just as much as when I started walking with him. Oh, it's fantastic. These guys covered it. So. I, yeah. Love it. <laughs> um, along the topic of Christians being judgmental or at least being perceived as judgmental, um, oftentimes Christians are seen as judgmental because they claim that there's only one path to God. And we addressed this in the sermon during the series, Is Christianity Too Narrow? Is there only one path to God? Or are there multiple paths? So someone submitted a follow-up question to that sermon. And Isaac, I'll direct this one to you to get us started. I've always felt it doesn't matter what a person believes as long as they are sincere in those beliefs. Do you agree? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And my initial first response, I, I was thinking that as Pastor Rex was answering that first question on this judgment side of things is people can get that mindset of Christians are judgmental and narrow-minded, and if you don't go their way, then, yeah, that they're going to cast judgment on you. And, and as Pastor Rex said, we can be guilty of that sometimes. So to answer that question, like you, you mentioned, I think going back to that message um, from Pat Murata is a great resource to start with. And then as we begin to think about the question, you know, to really think about, is there only one way? And the answer is, Yes, because that's what we see written in Scripture. You know, you look at Acts 4, you know, that there's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus. And, and Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no, no one comes to the Father but by me. And when you think uh, the Gospels as well in, in the book of Matthew, it talks about Matthew chapter 7, that enter by the narrow gate. And it says wide is the way and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many go that way, but it's narrow is the way that leads to life. So there is this reality that we see all throughout the Bible that there is the one way in following Jesus it, it would be easy for us to think and want it to be, yeah, all paths lead to God, and that's often what you will hear. But I think we, we hear repeated over and over throughout the Bible that the way that we follow is Jesus Christ as the one true way. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. Um, if the panel doesn't mind, I'm going to take us down a very different road um, and I think this is an important one. Matt, I'm going to ask that you address this one. And it's a complicated one, so I'll give some background first. Um, someone in the grace community has had conversations with an individual who insists that God does not want us to experience pain or hardship, and particularly physical illness. Um, 
This person cites Isaiah 53, 5, um, by his wounds we are healed, and says that this verse pertains particularly to physical illness. Um, in other words, if we have faith that we will be physically healed, we will. And if we don't have enough faith that we will be physically healed, we won't. Um, this person also writes further. They always thought of the healing passages in the New Testament, like in Matthew and in 1 Peter, as being Jesus giving signs through miracles that he is the Messiah. But um, verses like where Jesus says, your faith has healed you, puts questions and complicates the matter in this um, question asker's mind. So, Matt, our question, if I have enough faith, will I be healed or taken out of a bad circumstance? Yeah, I, I think there's two questions sort of baked into to what you just shared and very thoughtful comments. Thank you for whoever submitted that question. I think one of the questions is, does Isaiah 53 teach that there is physical healing meaning uh, deliverance from sickness promised to believers based upon what Christ has done on the cross. The second question, if I have enough faith, will God answer my prayers? So I'm gonna start with answering that second question. And you know, a topic that is wildly uh, popular with people is trying to discern God's will for their life. People wanna know what is God's design for my life? What is he hoping to accomplish through my life? And there's all different sorts of Christian books and sermons you can listen to about that. But I want to share with you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It's a short verse, but I think it's significant for helping us think about this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, God's will for our lives, as much as he loves us as a good father and blesses us, He's concerned with our comfort. He's concerned with our happiness. Ultimately, his will for us is not that we're always comfortable, not that we're always happy, but rather his will for us is that we grow in sanctification. And all that means is we grow in holiness and we grow to be more like Jesus. And I think it's important to stop and ask, how does that process actually work? I mean, to be sure, our minds are transformed by the word of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live victorious over sin. But think about this for a moment. I'll speak for myself. I am an extremely sinful person, and by nature, just one manifestation Amen. of this. Amen. <laughs> Amen. One of the manifestations of this is my impatience. I am by nature extremely impatient. Well, according to 1 Thessalonians, God's will is to make an impatient person patient. So, how does God do that? Well, he does that by ordering my life in such a way that he teaches me patience. He puts me behind slow drivers as I'm driving home from work. He puts me around family members and neighbors that take up a lot of my time when I'm in a hurry. And he uses these very uncomfortable, uh, uninvited, unwanted circumstances in my life to teach me patience. I'll give you another example. I, by nature, hate my enemies, okay? By my nature, if someone has done something wrong or if it's been very wrong, I want someone to break their jaw. I don't want to pray for them. I don't want them to be blessed. But God's will for me is my sanctification. So his will is that I grow in learning to follow Jesus and loving my enemy. Well, he does that by structuring my life in such a way that there are enemies in my life. So 
it is true that oftentimes there are not going to be blessings in our life simply because we haven't asked. That is true. It's also true that sometimes we don't have blessings because we're asking, but we have bad motives. But this idea that if we just have enough faith and confidence, God will always say yes is simply not true because his ultimate purpose and direction for my life and every Christ follower is to grow to be more like Jesus. Now, briefly, the first question. Does Christ's death on the cross, based off Isaiah 53.5, teach that there is physical healing and deliverance of sickness for every believer? This is going to sound controversial, but I believe the answer to that is yes. Okay. However, that does not come to fruition until the resurrection. In other words, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, it describes our bodies as perishable and corruptible. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, he has saved us spiritually and physically. And at the resurrection of the dead, these corruptible, perishable bodies will become incorruptible and imperishable. He may at times do the miraculous here between his first advent and when he comes again. But that perfect, final healing from all sickness and physical pain, that is God's will that was secured on the cross, but does not come to its full fruition until the resurrection. I think I said last panel that I want Matt to be my science teacher. Now I want you to be my Bible teacher. That, that I would consider. I'll consider that. I'm curious from the rest of the panel. As a pastor, uh, perhaps more than other professions, typically you run into families, individuals who are just experiencing a lot of pain and many of them experiencing pain around physical illnesses. Do you encounter this topic quite a bit? And what do you say to families who have this question? If, if I have enough faith, is God going to heal me? Yeah, it's definitely one that I know I've received, and I'm probably the youngest in our panel here in ministry, and I've received Don't it. Brag. In- Don't brag. Don't <laughs> brag. <laughs> All right. Uh, and it's definitely a question that comes up consistently, and I, I find myself answering, as Matt did, that we are only going to see, we will see some healing and miraculous things happen or by medicine and ways in which we have been given today happen here on this side of eternity. Um, but often even people ask, should we, should we pray for healing? Will healing come? And I've and, and I'm where Matt said, it might sound contradictory, but I've always given that answer of healing will come. It's just a question of whether it will be in the physical form now or whether it will be later on. Right. Yeah, and that doesn't stop us from continually going to God and, and presenting our requests to God. Like he wants us to come to him in humility and confidence of you are our savior, God. We're gonna bring everything that we're dealing with to you, whether or not he heals or not, that, that's up to him. Right. He wants us to be coming to him. And so that's where, we, that's where I land of, like, let's go to God. Let's present these to him. And, uh, and we may not understand or know what's going to happen, but we're coming to him. And that's what I think is important in that moment. Absolutely. That's great. I, I think that the concept um, of healing is on the mind of our congregation. There's a lot of questions that came in around healing. Um, So going from physical healing to healing of relationships and reconciliation, um, Rex, I'm wondering if you can lead us off for this next question. How do we handle forgiveness and second chances toward people who have hurt us Mm -hmm. or who have sinned against us? 
Wow, what a, that is a timeless uh, question. I think it's one of the most universally asked and most frequent questions that I hear in, in ministry. Uh, I would say this in starting, if we don't learn to practice forgiveness with people who've hurt us, we uh, will end up carrying around a sort of toxic poison inside of us of unforgiveness that will eventually result in a root of bitterness, which will eat us alive from the inside out. Refusing to forgive is a very, very destructive thing. If we're going to flourish in our Christian life, we've got to learn to forgive. And yet, that seems to be so difficult, and there's a lot of confusion around it. So, uh, I would say this. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.32 that we are to forgive as God has, in Christ, has forgiven us. Think of that. We're to forgive as God, in Christ, has forgiven us. There's a great parable Jesus told in Matthew 18, which tells about an unmerciful servant who was forgiven. He owed 10,000 talents, which is an astronomical amount of money. Somebody guessed that that was maybe the amount of gold held at Fort Knox or something. It's a debt he could have never paid back. And yet the master, just because he humbly asked, forgave him that enormous debt. This same man, forgiven so much, went, went out then and refused to forgive a fellow servant who owed him a mere 100 denarii. And I think the parable is meant to parallel our relationship with God. God forgives us so much, such an enormous sin debt that we have against him. Who are we then not to forgive on a horizontal level people who have hurt us or wronged us, okay? So what a powerful parable that is. But the part of the question I think that's most troubling for people is the second part or that part about second chances. There's where it gets a little more complicated. The first part is more straightforward. Forgiveness is a choice. We choose to give up any right we may feel we have to hurt those who have hurt us or to get even with those who have been unkind to us. That's forgiveness. We may not feel like it, but we make the choice to do that. It's a choice. But this whole thing about second chances has to do with trust. So let me give a couple of illustrations. Let's say that you have someone who has sexually abused children. Here's a man who sexually abused children. Should you forgive him? Absolutely. Absolutely, you should forgive. Should you put him in charge of children again and give him access to children? Absolutely not. And people will protest and go, but I thought that forgiveness means you forgive and forget. I thought you're supposed to forgive and then act like nothing happened. Hope you're listening. That is ridiculous. By the way, the Bible never teaches forgive and forget. I don't know where that erroneous idea got started. Scripture does say in Isaiah 43, verse 25, that God remembers our sin no more. But we are never instructed not to remember an offense. What we are instructed to do is forgive it, and trust may or may not be reestablished. Let's take another scenario. 
Let's say that a husband has committed adultery and been unfaithful to his wife. Should the wife forgive him? Absolutely. Should she trust him immediately? I'd say probably not. Because trust has to be reestablished through a track record of trustworthiness. Now, it can be reestablished. In that scenario, if the husband is humble about it, if he is transparent, if he is willing to be accountable, then trust over time may be reestablished. And this church is filled with examples of people who have learned to reestablish trust with someone who has let them down, sinned against them, and or hurt them in some way. But let's take one more scenario quickly. Let's say that your friend, a good friend that you trusted with your life, she stabs you in the back. Let me ask again, should you forgive her? Absolutely. As a believer, you're actually commanded to do that. It's a command. Make the decision to give up any right you may feel you have to hurt those who have hurt you. You forgive. Should you trust her? Hopefully trust can be reestablished, but I wanna tell you today, I hope you understand that trust and forgiveness are totally different issues. And when someone has broken trust with you, it is possible for trust to be reestablished but it is also likely that it may never be the same again. It is likely that you will never have the same kind of friendship again. If it happens, wonderful, praise God, but it's likely that it may never be the same. I hope you get this because it's been the source of a lot of pain and confusion for a lot of people, and I believe knowing the difference, and there is a huge difference between forgiveness and trust Knowing that forgiveness, that difference between those two is at the heart of a lot of the confusion out there in the body of Christ. I, wow, I feel convicted right now just hearing that. That's such a powerful word for 2020. It's We're, one that we never really get away from. I mean, uh, this is something that obviously I've taught here at Grace for 28 years almost now. And yet the question is just as fresh as it was in year one because we're constantly called upon. I don't know about you guys, but I hope I'm not the only one who is regularly hurt by people or disappointed by people or let down by people. I'm sure all of you are. I'm sure everyone listening to me right now can fully identify with what I'm saying. We are constantly in situations where we have a choice to make. Am I gonna forgive this person or not? I'm telling you, if you don't forgive, you are carrying around a toxic poison in you that's gonna hurt you more than it ever hurts them. Trust me on that. Trust me on that. But will you reestablish trust? Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. There is a time to walk away from situations, and I do not believe, I hope you're listening, I do not believe it is always the wisest, most prudent choice to keep putting yourself back into situations where you can be hurt all over again with someone who has proven, proven through a track record that they are untrustworthy. It's hard to move on from that one. <laughs> for the sake of time, I'm gonna Pardon squeeze me in one for more. getting fired up. <laughs> I'm fired preacher? up about this topic. Are you a preacher? <laughs> I am. I thought so. <laughs> 
Okay, it's really, really fast because our time is almost done. Um, Tim, I want to throw this one in. In the book of Job, Satan had to ask God's permission before he did anything to Job. Is it the same for the Christian today? How seriously should we take this thing called spiritual warfare? Wow. Mm. Yeah, I've always found it interesting how much we wonder about Satan and, and uh, the forces of evil and spiritual warfare and actually how little the Bible talks about it. Uh, I, I jotted down some notes here just so I'm... Uh, saying the correct things, that Satan seeks to oppose God. So this is what we know. Satan seeks to oppose God. Satan uses lies and deception to try to destroy the work of God. And, and unlike God, Satan is not omnipotent, which is all-powerful. He's not omnipresent, which is everywhere. So, so how much do we pay attention to him? How much do we give him credit? How much do we uh, focus on this idea of Satan and spiritual warfare? And I think that we should look at Jesus in that moment. How much did Jesus pay attention to or not pay attention to Satan and the work of, of Satan? I think Jesus knew that Satan was real. He was an intentional being. He was aware of who Satan was and the power that he had. At the same time, Jesus did not spend all of his ministry talking about Satan and how to stand up to him. So I think we should take a cue from Jesus in there and say, yes, we should pay attention to spiritual, this idea of spiritual evil and yet not pay all attention to it. Uh, in fact, C.S. Lewis, who's a brilliant author, wrote this about this idea that whether you laugh at the idea of Satan meaning you're not paying any attention to him, or you see a, a demon in every dark corner, meaning you're paying all attention to him, you're playing right into the enemy's hand. So we should respect his power. We, sh we should respect Satan by being aware of who he is and the power he has to lead us astray while not giving him the attention that really only God deserves. So yes, we pay attention to it, but no, we don't pay attention to it to the realm that, man, all my attention should be toward God. Uh, so we don't want to put Satan in that place. I love what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 10. It says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Satan and all the forces of evil are going to and have to bow and submit to Jesus. And even in the story of Job, like today, since God is this powerful king, Satan is under God's authority. Satan is, it has to have that permission uh, to do what, what God has allowed him to do, but nothing more. And I like to land kind of so functionally, yes, Satan has to have that kind of permission because he's under the authority of God because God is the sovereign king of the world and, and everything in it. And I like to land in, in these words of Jesus in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, do not be afraid. Because I think this topic can bring so much fear of this unknown force of evil. And yet, for those who are in Christ, we don't have to be afraid because we have the power of God. And that's amazing news. That is the good news that we have through the gospel, through our faith in Christ alone, that we can overcome and overpower yeah. Satan. Pastor Tim, I love your answer, and, and I, would, I would recommend to anyone listening, 
that great book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters, yeah. which, yeah. which really I, I think is one of the most brilliant books that Lewis wrote, where he kind of addresses that whole question of that spiritual unseen world out there and how we should best address it and, and be aware of it. Years ago, uh, there was a brilliant comedian named Flip Wilson, which a few of you may remember, who had this funny stick he did. It was called, The Devil Made Me Do It. The Devil Made Me Do It. And it was absolutely hilarious. And I've known some believers who kind of lived their whole Christian life sort of in that realm of, oh, the devil is everywhere, demon under every rock. They're hiding behind every bush, and they are out to get me, and they're obsessed, literally obsessed with demons and with the devil. That's not a healthy place to live. As you indicated, I don't think Jesus lived there, but he, and yet he was very much aware of Satan. He didn't ignore him. Uh, if he was under attack, he addressed Satan straightforward with the power of the word and so on. Uh, so I, I love the balance that I hear in your answer. We could keep talking all day. And again, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I feel that all of these are so powerful, particularly for the season that we're in, in 2020. And Tim, I love what you said. We, we acknowledge Satan. We, we acknowledge that sport, spiritual warfare is alive and well, but we don't have to fear it. Our Lord's already conquered Satan. It's done. And the one who's in us, of course, is greater than the one who is in the world, as 1 John 4 reminds us. Yeah. I can't think of a better place to end. And seriously, we could talk all day. Our, our time is up. It's too sad. <laughs> um, thank you, pastors, for all of your time. And Grace Fellowship, seriously, thank you for the thoughtful questions that you've submitted. We don't want the dialogue to end. Um, each of our campus pastors here, Isaac, Tim, and Matt, each lead a Grace campus. And camp, each campus has staff, volunteers, small groups, ministry teams who want to know you. They would love to live life with you and have conversations like we've had today. Um, so you can find all of the contact information for each of our campuses on our website. They would love to hear from you. And again, happy Thanksgiving week to everyone. Let's conclude our time today in prayer. Lord, thank you for these big questions. Thank you that we have the community to uh, safely explore these questions within. Thank you for having friends where we can have open dialogue, um, ask some raw, heartfelt questions about the topics that we're struggling with the most. And Lord, thank you that ultimately, at the end of the day, you are the answer to life's big questions and that you've got us. No matter whether we're in the middle of a pandemic, cultural division, you've got us. You've got this. God, we thank you for that and we love you. In your name, amen.